0: Afterwards, Strack wrote this, Dribble, dribble, dribble go the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, the years of our lives. How often have you and I dribbled away valuable seconds that we could have used to win the game? You could have won the prize of knowing Christ. You could have won a reward for serving God. You could have won lost souls to Jesus Christ. Instead, we dribbled away the seconds. It was like we had time to waste rather than a game to win. Paul's goal in this week's chapters is to help us avoid that mistake. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, his sights are set on eternity. The Apostle Paul is focused on the judgment seat of Christ, and he encourages us not to waste a single second. Verse 1 begins, For we know that if our earthly house... This tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. During Paul's stay in Corinth, he made tents. Remember, Paul was a tent maker by trade. And here he compares our human body to a tent. Both are temporary dwellings. Both are fragile and flimsy. Our earthly house, this body was made to fold. Now, I know a lot of you like to camp, probably camped last weekend, but not me. Don't like it at all. I like to camp in a nice hotel. My problem isn't sleeping under the stars. It's not enjoying the outdoors. I just hate all the effort that goes into camping. You pack up, you set up, then you tear down. To me, camping is a hassle, and so is camping out in these mortal bodies, Think of the time and energy and money you waste maintaining your body. For starters, you have to refuel it three times a day. My car will run on a tank all week. You also have to park your body for about eight hours each night. A body requires frequent oil changes, a daily wash and wax, and to topple all off, you're constantly driving into the mechanic for repairs. And what really upsets me most about my body is that I have to drag it around with me wherever I go. My body's like a tent. A lot of time and effort and energy and money goes into its upkeep. Bodies are a hassle. And Paul says that one day we're going to swap these temporary troublesome tents for more permanent structures. He says we've been promised a building from God. When Jesus Christ returns for his church, we'll receive new eternal housing, a body made from elements not subject to decay and deterioration. Your heavenly body won't have to be refueled or rested or repaired. You'll be able to spend all of your effort worshiping your Lord Jesus. One day, our spirits will be given the keys to hassle-free housing. We'll get glorified bodies. Once there was a family, they had a ritual that they conducted whenever one of the children's pet goldfish died. Mom, dad, brothers and sister, they would all gather around the commode. Well, the brothers, they would flush the fish over the, they'd hold the fish over the toilet, and then they'd say a prayer, and then they'd flush the fish to goldfish heaven. Well, one such solemn occasion, the little sister asked her mom if Grandpa, who had died years earlier, was also in heaven. The mom said confidently, oh, yes, he is, honey. That's when one of the boys asked, who flushed him? When the Lord returns for his church, hey, we'll all flush these bodies, and we'll receive new perfect bodies. Paul says, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Understand the philosophy of Greek culture viewed the body as evil, as totally and completely unredeemable. Epictetus said he was a poor burden, he was a poor soul burdened with a corpse. That's how he viewed his body. Seneca, Roman historian, called himself a slave of the body. You see, the Greek and Roman hope for the afterlife was to be free from the body, to be a disembodied spirit. But Paul tells us that God has a greater plan for us, that he's going to transform our mortal bodies into immortal, eternal bodies, will be resurrected. He says, for we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Understand, God's redemption won't be complete until all traces of sin have been eradicated, have been blotted out, and that includes even sin's effect on our body. You know, if you were in a car wreck and all the insurance paid for was the repair the engine, you'd be disappointed. How about some body work? Surely it covers some body work. Well, God is not only a good mechanic, he also has a body shop. Sure, he fixes our hearts. He's an expert under the hood. He purifies us and sanctifies us and energizes us. But he also, one day, has a body for us. He's designed a glorified body to replace these wrecked ones. Paul says in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, that is, as a down payment. The spiritual life that we receive now is earnest money on the spiritual body that will be given later. The presence of God's spirit in us now means that there's more to come for us in the future. And so we are also confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul longs, he even groans for his eternal body. Imagine skin that doesn't sag, muscles that don't tire, cells that don't get sick. You know, the older I get, the more I groan for my bod from God. I can't wait. Today I'm coping with a flimsy, fragile tent. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. In the troublesome now, we hold on to his promises by faith. And here is Paul's faith. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Notice, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There are two passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, that teach us that believers wait until the end of the age in Christ's return. They wait for an event known as the rapture to receive their eternal bodies. And yet the moment the spirit of a believer departs his earthly tent, he immediately finds himself in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from these bodies is to be present with the Lord. The notion of soul sleep, that the soul hibernates until the resurrection is unbiblical. The moment we die, our spirit is with the Lord. Your loved ones who died in Christ are with him right now. Well, verse 9 tells us, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The term Paul uses, judgment seat, is a translation of the Greek word bima. The bima seat was the platform in Greek towns where officials would make important pronouncements. From the Bema seat, rewards were handed out and decisions were handed down. And one day, every believer is going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ for that very same purpose. You know, some people confuse the great white throne of judgment with the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20 speaks of the white throne where the lost will be judged and condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. It's for unbelievers Whereas the Bema seat is for Christians. Our place in heaven is secured by the blood of our Lord Jesus. But our service for the Lord will be tried to see what rewards we'll receive. Our motives will be judged. Reminds me of the widow. She was furious over the fact that her husband had bequeathed all his money to his secretary. Low-down, dirty scoundrel. His own wife had been cut out of the will. She rushed to the graveyard to have the inscription on his tombstone changed, but she got there too late. She wasn't about to spend her own money on a new stone, so she had the undertaker carve an add-on. Right after rest in peace, he chiseled, until we meet again. And each of us will meet again. At the Bema seat of Christ, our Lord Jesus will judge what we did for him. Did we serve him with sincerity, out of pure motivations? Our motives will be measured. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. A Christian has no need to fear the Lord. We're his kids, we're clothed in his righteousness. But we should fear for those who don't know him. The last place an unredeemed sinner wants to be is in the presence of a holy God. In light of unforgiven sin and guilt, his holiness will be terrifying. People will quiver in fear. And this is why Paul preached. This is why he persuaded men. He says in verse 11, We persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. Paul persuaded men to believe the gospel. He shouldn't have to persuade men to believe him. Remember God and the Corinthians, they knew of Paul's integrity. Paul had lived with the Corinthians for a year and a half. They were aware of his motives. And this is why he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you. We shouldn't have to prove ourselves again, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Understand, Paul's critics measured an apostle by appearance and by image. They said that a true man of God should look the part. He should have some skill, some stature, some gravitas. Yet Paul hoped that he didn't need to prove himself to the Corinthians. He says, you know my heart. And this is the real measure of a man of God. Paul didn't concern himself with looking good in the eyes of people. He was all about being good before God. You know, history tells us that Paul was not much of a physical specimen. He was barely five foot tall. He had a hunchback, a hooked nose, bow legs, and his thick eyebrows ran all the way across his forehead. It looked as if there was a caterpillar crawling right above his eyes. And those eyes were often infected, often bulging with pulse. In addition, his body was tattooed from the scars that he took from the beatings and the scourgings and the stonings. Paul would have never made the cover of GQ. Or even Christianity today. He was an example of a walking wounded, and yet it was his heart, not his appearance, that truly mattered. There were those, some false teachers in Corinth, who were just the opposite. These false teachers, they looked like FCA leaders, big men on campus, muscular and rugged, good-looking guys. These guys tried hard to be cool. They were the hipsters. Tall on appearance, but short on substance. In the final analysis, they were more about marketing than ministering. They were all hype and no holiness. And in contrast, Paul thought that the Corinthians would know him, that they would trust him. In contrast, though, people thought Paul was nuts. You know, and he did little to counter their perceptions. Notice what he says. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. In essence, if you think I'm crazy, well, then know that I'm crazy for God. And if you think I'm in my right mind and right on, then follow my example. Either way, though, Paul didn't take a poll before he acted. He was the opposite of politically correct. The only expectations he lived up to were those of pleasing the Lord. Paul reveals his master motivation in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ compels us. The reason he endured such hardships was the love of Christ. He knew how much the Lord loved him, and he loved the Lord in return. Notice so far in chapter 5, Paul mentions three different motivations for serving Jesus. There are rewards, there's fear, and there's love. And all three are powerful motivations, and we need each of them at some time or another. But without question, the highest and the holiest incentive for serving the Lord is love. Knowing in your heart of hearts that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose for you and cares for you. This is what captivates and propels a person forward. It causes them to go anywhere, do anything for Jesus' sake. A tank that's full of the love of Christ will never run empty. Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And here is a glorious truth about our salvation. When Jesus died, we died with him. In a spiritual sense, we died with him. Our sin nature was crucified with Christ. We learned this from Romans chapter 6, remember. Think of it like copy and paste. My computer allows me to copy from one document and then paste it into another. God can also copy and paste. Spiritually, he copied you in the 21st century. And he scrolled back to the 1st century where he pasted you alongside Jesus on the cross. You now share in what Jesus has accomplished. When Jesus died to sin, the old you died with him. Paul continues, he says, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In Christ, we died to our old desires, and we became a brand new person in him. God now gives to every Christian a new identity, a new nature, a new disposition, a new love, a new purpose, a new joy, even a new power. He figures the least that we can do is embrace that new life and live it to the max. Verse 16 tells us, Therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. This is an incredibly significant verse. Really understand this verse, and it'll change how you live your life. Paul uses Jesus as an example. On earth, the disciples knew him as a man. They knew him physically and tangibly. You know, even today, we often picture Jesus with human traits, hopefully with Middle Eastern features, like black hair and a Jewish nose. The Lord's humanness enabled his disciples to identify Jesus on the street, to follow him in person. But now that he's ascended to heaven, we relate to Jesus spiritually. His former appearance is no longer that significant. The fact that he was with us is theoretically important, but the specifics, his height or his weight or his facial features or his physique are no longer a relevant issue. This is why God didn't provide us any physical depictions or portraits of Jesus. I think his omission was very intentional. God is teaching us a new way to view one another. Since we've all become new people in Christ, why focus any longer on the outer person? Why not look beneath the surface? As best we can, God wants us to look past our bodies and relate to folks spiritually. And the first way to apply this principle is personally. Why get bummed out about your appearance? The real you is not the outer person, you are the inner person. Remember, our bodies are just a tent. They're just a little pup tent. They're gonna fold one day, they're temporary dwellings. Our bodies crack, they weather like a tent, like a pecan. I'm more than just the outer shell. Man, the real me is the nut on the inside, okay? This is how we should see ourselves. Years ago, supermodel Carol Mallory, she commented, everywhere I went, my figure followed, but I learned I am not my figure. In short, your looks are not the real you. Your personhood involves far more than how pretty you are or how fit you are or how smart you are or how athletic you are. The real person is who you are on the inside. You are what you are spiritually. Here's a great way that we men can apply Paul's people principle. When you see a pretty girl, remember, that's not the girl. The real person is under the wrapping paper. In reality, that pretty girl might be a lonely, sad, vindictive, ugly person. She's definitely a soul in need of Jesus. Paul's point here is that we should learn to see ourselves and other people in terms of who we are spiritually. We're not our weight or our height or our shape or our looks. The real you is the spiritual you. Your body is just a pup tent that one day you're going to trade in for a mansion. And thus Paul writes triumphantly, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Realize, a Christian is a new species of creature that prior to the first century had never roamed this planet. When the first, we are the first human since Adam, since the fall of man, not to have a sin nature. Our old man has been crucified with Christ. We represent a brand new start for mankind. God planted in our hearts a love for him and a love for others. What a blessing that is. And we're now capable of what no one else could do before us. We can grow spiritually. We can live victoriously. In Christ, we are the envy of the angels. Paul calls us new creations. And then he says in verse 18, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Notice God is not the one who needs to be reconciled to us. He loves us. He's for us. He wants to forgive us. It's mankind who is at war with God. We're the hostiles. And yet Jesus died to make a way for us to return to God, to reconcile us to God. He paid our penalty. He's gained for us a pardon. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, not only has Jesus done what was needed to unite us with God, he set us on a mission now to bring other people with us. He reconciles us, and then he makes us ministers of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This blows my mind. On the cross, God was in Christ dying to save you. Now, God is in you pleading for men to be saved. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're divine diplomats We're God's spokespeople on this earth today. Like a foreign envoy sent to another country, we speak declarations from home in a way that the locals can hear and understand. An ambassador for Christ, we convey a message. We convey the message of heaven in a way that earthly ears can hear and grasp. And this involves two equal priorities we need to be faithful to the message to the message from home, from heaven. But we also need to be flexible with our methods so that we can relate to the people around us. Relatable culturally, but reliable spiritually. True to the message, but shrewd with our delivery. And then Paul adds, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was a spotless sacrifice. He knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb, sinless. And yet at the cross, the full weight of every grimy act done in every slimy place was suddenly thrust on Jesus' sinless shoulders. He was made sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on all that was wrong with fallen humanity so that we could become what is right in the eyes of a holy God. What a message we have to share. Nothing is more deserving of our maxed effort than to communicate the gospel effectively. Again, as ambassadors, we're like an interpreter. And a good interpreter is fluent in two languages, isn't he? What he hears, but also what he speaks God has made us interpreters. Let's both be faithful to the message of the scriptures, but then also fluent in the language of the culture. Well, Chapter 6 begins. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Notice, we not only work for Jesus, but we work with him. Paul writes, as workers together with him. And here Paul pleads with the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain, for it can happen. Grace gets wasted on an ungrateful or an unrepentant heart. Grace is God's change agent. Access to God's blessings should never be taken advantage of, they should never be taken for granted. We don't just receive grace, we grow in grace. Don't waste God's grace. For he says, and Paul quotes Isaiah 49, verse 8, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul says now is the day that the prophets foretold. Not next week, not tomorrow, but today is the day to be saved. Keep in mind that salvation is a seasonal business like beach toys, or like Christmas ornaments, or like Valentine's candy. There are only certain times of the year when products are kept in stock. Go today to the grocery store and try to find some Valentine candy. Good luck. But likewise with salvation. Paul says, now, today is the day of salvation. When time ends and eternity begins, you'll no longer be able to obtain salvation. Today, though, the shelves are stocked. Business is brisk. God even needs help behind the counter. That's why he's recruited you and me as ambassadors for Christ. In the grocery store where I used to work, there was a rule that if customers were stacking up at the checkouts, at the registers, even if you were on break or even if you were taking your lunch, you went back to work immediately. You never made the customer wait. And this is why God is calling all his servants to the registers today. This is why you are an ambassador for Christ. We've got customers at the checkouts, and they need the gospel. And when I talk about that day when time ends and eternity begins, I'm just not talking about a day when Jesus returns. For time ends and eternity begins every day for millions of people who die and meet their maker. Right this second, people all over the globe are checking out, and they desperately need Jesus. You know, you hear a lot of talk these days about near-death experiences. Folks supposedly see bright lights, and they walk down long tunnels and so forth. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not what you're going to see when you die. Near-death isn't the same as really dead. C.S. Lewis describes what you see the first moment after you really die. He says, there will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It won't last forever. We must take it or leave it. That's why today is the day of salvation. Everyone did the checkouts, friends. We got customers. Verse 3. Paul says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. You know, some ministries do more harm than good. They turn people off needlessly. Christians can be rude or inauthentic or hypocritical or out of date or out of touch. The gospel will offend folks by its very nature. We don't need to offend them unnecessarily. He says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. You know, a typical church member doesn't realize the sacrifices and the difficulties that their pastor makes. The Corinthians didn't realize all that Paul had endured to bring the gospel to them. It's been said, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And In the next few verses, Paul itemizes the price that he paid to be a minister of the gospel. He begins with the pressures of the ministry. He says, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. Then he talks about the persecutions in the ministry, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, followed by the passions of the ministry, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, as well as the godly principles and priorities within ministry, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. And finally, he mentions a few paradoxes in ministry. He says, by honor and by dishonor. You know, it's odd how people treat me when they find out I'm a pastor. Some people show instant respect, while other people show instant disdain. Oh, you're a pastor? In honor and in dishonor, by evil report and by good report. You know, in today's godless culture, it's impossible to teach God's word without ruffling a few feathers. I mean, here's my job. Every single week, I make somebody mad. Did you realize that? I mean, every sermon is a split decision. To some folks, it's a good report. To other folks, it's a bad report. They get offended. As deceivers and yet true, not only do I teach, but I also am called to lead. And thus, if you like the direction we're going, you say amen. If you don't like it, you call me a fraud. But every decision a pastor makes is met by some controversy. It's a tough job. He says, as unknown and as well-known. Oh, everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy. But sometimes you forget, to Kathy, I'm her honey. I'm dad to eight kids now. I'm G-daddy to the nine most precious grandkids on the planet. And I'm even a pastor to other pastors. Everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy, but few people remember I've got a life outside of what I do for them. As unknown as and yet, as well known, as dying, and behold, we live. We die to our pride. We sacrifice for others, even as God fills us up with His life, as chastened and yet not killed. Did you know God disciplines the pastor? Did you know that? The pastor's not above a spanking. But what doesn't kill the man makes him better, as chastened and yet not killed. And then, verse 10 as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Oh boy. Ministry is full of highs and lows. I can get my heart broken by a person I trusted and then seconds later, I get the joy of leading a person to Christ. Up and down, highs and lows, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. That's why you got to persist. As poor and yet making many rich, Generally speaking, being a pastor isn't a way to get rich, but it's a wonderful way to enrich others. And that's the goal. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. A pastor's bank account might hover at empty, but as he serves the Lord, he's laying up treasure in heaven. Paul's discussion of ministry wasn't about him tooting his own horn. Understand that. See, the Corinthians had questioned him. He wanted them to know what he had endured for their sake. And I know how Paul feels. You know, the toughest times in ministry are when folks criticize what they see while you're making sacrifices they can't see. That's when it gets painful. Several years ago, I came under attack from some critics here in the church. and I'll never forget going to my dad for advice. Whenever you go to my dad for advice, boy, get ready. Brace yourself because you're going to get it. I spilled my guts. I said, Dad, I said, this is terrible. He said, you'd think after all these years I wouldn't have to still prove myself. And I'll never forget my dad's reply. He looked at me and he said, Sandy, in this world, you've got to prove yourself to people every single day. And it's true. Thankfully, Paul didn't have to prove himself to Jesus, but he did have to prove himself to people every single day. Well, Paul continues. He says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Paul's saying, we've been candid. We've been honest with you. Verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. See, the Corinthians had blamed Paul for their problems, but he wasn't the problem. They should look in the mirror. That's what he's saying. One night I was listening to the Dr. Laura uh, call-in radio show a caller had called in and was talking about the problems that her parents were having when suddenly dr laura jumped into the conversation and corrected her he she said no the problems they are creating she then explained that when a tornado destroys your house you have a problem but when you act selfishly and make bad choices, you create a problem. There's a difference between having a problem and creating a problem. The Corinthians here were creating problems, not having problems. Verse 13, now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. In other words, I've been open with you, now you be open with me. And then he gives them a crucial principle. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the imagery that he paints here is that of a plow being pulled by two oxen. The necks of the animals are in a wooden harness or a yoke. The yoke causes pain if one oxen doesn't cooperate with the other. See, the yoke is designed to choke the one who pulls ahead or pinches the one who lags behind. The yoke is constructed to force the oxen to work together. And thus it's easier on the animals if two of the same breed share the yoke. Mix a donkey with an oxen and you're insured of friction and frustration. Different species in the same yoke have different natures that then pull apart and fight against each other. And likewise, a believer and an unbeliever are separate species. They're different breeds with different natures. A believer has been born of God. The believer is alive to the things of God. Whereas the unbeliever, though perhaps a nice person, is dead in their sin and oblivious to God's Spirit. Put these two breeds in the same yoke, whether it be a marriage or a business or a roommate situation or a serious dating relationship. Put them in the same yoke and it will create a long-term frustration. At first, they might get along, but over time, inevitably, they'll move in separate directions. They'll pinch or they'll choke each other. A yoke will cause pain. And Paul asks five rhetorical questions of the person who's unequally yoked with an unbeliever, a believer who's unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He asked, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord Or harmony has Christ with Belial. Belial was is a word that means worthless. It was an epithet used for Satan. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Guys, some things just don't mix. Oil and water don't mix. Honey and vinegar don't mix. Drinking and driving doesn't mix. Water and electricity doesn't mix. Gators and bulldogs. Don't mix. And then also believers and unbelievers. Now remember, chapter 5 calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. Thus we can't withdraw from the world and still be ministers of reconciliation. But neither can we be overly involved and thus end up vexed by the world. See, it's one thing to have contact. You want to have contact with the world. But it's another thing to have contract we can interact, but when we, we step over a lethal line, when we get too intertwined and too interconnected, a believer and an unbeliever should not be yoked together. Paul adds one more question in verse 16. He says, "In what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We're God's kids, and we should live like it. That's why it's often said, if a child of God marries a child of the devil, then the child of God is sure to have trouble with his father-in-law. And trust me, that is far more true than you know. I could fill a five-gallon bucket with the tears shed in my office by believers who ignored this principle and married an unbeliever. Nothing is more agonizing and complex and taxing on a Christian than to be married to someone who doesn't share their most basic, heartfelt allegiance to Jesus. Though it's just my conviction, it is hard to argue. You single people pay attention to this. You'll never marry an unbeliever if you never date one. That's some good wisdom. Chapter 6, verse 17, quotes Isaiah 52, verse 11. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In our interactions with the world, we need balance. Don't isolate from the world. You can't isolate and be an ambassador. And reach people, but neither should you assimilate and buy into their values. We need a healthy mix. We need to be friends with sinners, but we need to have fellowship with the saints. Once a mom tried to teach this lesson to her sons. She was out in the garden. She was working in the dirt. When she held up her white gloves, she said, Notice, boys, when I stick these gloves in the dirt, the gloves become dirty. The dirt doesn't get glovey. And this is what we're taught in 1 Corinthians 15, It says, evil company corrupts good habits. Hang out with the wrong people for long, and you'll eventually get hung. And there we have 2 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6.